Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker, along with my co-host and partner, as always, Luke Benke. Reminder that this is the show we break down the most impactful legal stories, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're going to be talking about the Dominion settlement uh, against Fox News, $787.5 million settlement, the largest defamation settlement ever. Luke, what do you got this week? So the oldest active U.S. federal judge is under investigation over her performance on the bench. And uh, there's a criminal justice crisis in Wisconsin. All of that and more. Here's what you need to know. Before we get into our our stories, uh, we're going to address a listener question that we got from Sue. Our last episode, we discussed some moves by the White House uh, that were going to promulgate different rules that would allow different lawmaking agencies to quantify and put a specific monetary amount or dollar on different natural resources and natural assets like, for example, forest land or, or clean water or uh, fresh air, things like that. Um, if you want more details on that, you go back and listen to our last episode. We talk about it a lot there, but that's what this question is based on. Yeah, so this this question came from uh, Sue in Wisconsin, and she asks, uh, Luke and Jack, do you think by quantifying those natural resources, does that make the step to privatizing those resources easier or more attractive to corporations? That's question one. Question two is what is the negative side to this move to quantify them? Yeah, I mean, this to me seems more akin to like carbon credits, um, which are, there is a market for carbon credits. I mean, companies trade them and buy and sell them and everything. And it's, that was the thing that was created whole cloth by the federal government, like what, 10 years ago. Um, so I think that, you know, this is insofar as the government is going to say, Hey, these things matter and have value now and are worth X amount of dollars. Um, that is going to immediately incentivize the creation of a secondary market. I have no idea what that'll look like, but, um, you know, like I said, we saw it with carbon credits. There's whole companies now that do nothing other than buy and sell and, uh, and trade and arbitrage carbon credits. Frankly, that's what Tesla does. So, um, you know, something like that might happen. My sense would be it probably hurts because it creates, you know, a cost or a market where one didn't exist before. And now it's another thing that they've got to deal with. And maybe this is something that the IRS or somebody, some other, uh, bureaucracy is tasked with, um, you know, making sure that these companies are complying with that. Um, so I, I don't know that it would necessarily be a good thing for the bottom line. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if it's good for society, then I would put it to you that that, that is more important than, uh, than, than Nestle's bottom line to me. When I was reading about this story last week, I, I was looking into what, what are the kind of counter arguments to it. And um, the potential downside to something like this would be um, probably hindrance to business activity. You know, if the federal government is um, quantifying certain things and, uh, and putting a value on, you know, lumber or fresh water or, or clean air or, or whatever, um, that's going to be used uh, by advocates or whether they're climate advocates or just folks that are concerned about the uh, cleanliness of the drinking water or whatever um, as a cudgel against, you know, anyone who may be doing business that would pollute those things. So 
you know, I think that that's the, the reason for the opposition to this move, at least um, from the perspective of the opponents, uh, which is, you know, it's going to be something, it's going to be more red tape for businesses to get around, um, especially ones that are working at the bottom end of the supply chain, you know, with water and lumber and agriculture, et cetera. Um, so that, that's, I think, the pretty obvious uh, fear about the downside. Yeah, I mean, it's still in its early stages, but I would say, you know, your, the major downsides, it seems to me, are, you know, sort of larger government, more regulation, um, you know, less sort of companies doing uh, what companies do, which is, you know, make products and make money off of their products. Up first, the Dominion voting machine lawsuit that was filed against Fox in 2020, 2021, um, settled this past week. The total settlement was $787.5 million, the largest defamation settlement ever. First off, um, and we're going to set aside our politics here as to, you know, this is obviously an ideologically charged issue, um, but we're going to do what we do here and ignore that. And uh, let's just get into the first part of this, which is you got to hand it to Dominion's lawyers who were up against Winston and Strawn, uh, which had the defense in this case, and specifically um, the legendary Dan Webb. Dan Webb is a fellow Loyola alum, go Ramblers, and he gained notoriety for his uh, prosecutions of, of the Iran-Contra affair back in the 80s. He was the um, he was a special prosecutor here in Chicago on a number of local cases like the Juicy Smollett case, for example. Uh, Dan Webb is a living legend in terms of um, civil litigation. Uh, so for Dominion to get a win here is a testament to how good a job their lawyers did, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. So Dominion was represented by lead counsel Steve Shackelford, who's a partner at Susman Godfrey. Uh, according to a Bloomberg write-up on the settlement, Susman Godfrey usually represents big ticket clients on contingency fees, usually meaning that they take about one third of whatever the settlement proceeds are. So if that's the case here, and we don't know yet, but if that is the case, Shackelford and his firm would be looking at attorney's fees of over $250 million. So good for them. Um, and if you don't know the basic facts of the case, uh, I'll summarize as best I can quickly. Dominion ran the voting machines that were used in certain states in the 2020 presidential election. Uh, Donald Trump and some of his surrogates um, went on Fox News from time to time, spending a lot of time after the November election deriding the voting machines by name, calling out Dominion as a company, specifically saying that they either uh, falsified or you know intentionally messed with the poll numbers. Um, and that's what Dominion sued for. It was for defamation based on that. So there's a good write-up in the National Review on this, uh, which I'll quote at length here. I think this is a good summary. Quote, if you choose to believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, you must also believe that there is a compelling pile of verifiable evidence for some reason was never presented by Donald Trump's presidential campaign and its myriad of post-election lawsuits in November and December of 2020. Further, you must believe that when facing a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit from Dominion, Fox News never presented any of this evidence as a defense in the defamation suit. Truth or substantial truth is an absolute defense in a defamation case. If you choose to believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, you must believe Fox News agreed to pay 7 
$187.5 million to Dominion in a settlement rather than present any of that evidence. You must believe that Fox News had a quick and easy way to win this lawsuit and simply refused to, even though the news distributor had more than 700 million good reasons to point to this evidence, if it existed. But Fox News did not present that evidence. In fact, Fox Corporation Chairman Rupert Murdoch said under oath that he believes the 2020 presidential election was free, fair, and not stolen. Fox News did not present any evidence contending the 2020 presidential election was not stolen because the 2020 presidential election was not stolen, and there is no compelling evidence that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Period. Full stop. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. But how is it that Fox News is paying this settlement when the people who were making the accusations against Dominion were guests on the show? They were guests. They weren't Fox employees, right? Does the news show take on liability for the statements of their guests? Usually not. And if you just neutrally report what someone says, you are typically shielded from liability for defamation under the law. However, in this case, it was the hosts on Fox who were making the comments disparaging Dominion. For example, here's uh, a quote from Sydney Pat, one of Sidney Powell's appearances on the Lou Dobbs show. Sidney Powell says, no, we've seen willful blindness. They have adopted a position of willful blindness to this massive corruption across the country. And the Smartmatic software is in the DNA of every vote tabulating software companies and systems. Lou Dobbs says, yes, and it is more than just willful blindness. This is people trying to blind us as to what is going on. Later, uh, November 8th, 2020, Fox host Maria Bartiromo, who was also interviewing Sidney Powell, said, quote, Sidney, I want to ask you about these algorithms and the Dominion software. Sidney, we talked about the Dominion software. I know that there were voting irregularities. Tell me about that. Uh, on November 30th, Lou Dobbs had a lot to say. He said, uh, quote, I think most Americans right now cannot believe what we are witnessing this election. We have across almost every state, whether it's Dominion, whatever the company, voting machine company, no one knows their ownership, has an idea what's going on in those servers, has no understanding of the software because it's proprietary, yada, yada, yada. Um, so the long and short of it is uh, it's Fox hosts that were getting Fox in trouble here. It wasn't the guests. The Fox hosts uh, were taking positions and speaking, frankly, directly to the Fox audience and saying um, what were allegedly defamatory statements about Dominion. Um, notably, Fox dumped Lou Dobbs in 2021, shortly after these lawsuits were filed. Um, going back to the National Review post, the author makes the point that these kind of loose cannon hosts, um, such as Dobbs, uh, in this case, are costing their employer dearly. Quote, a loose cannon host who is unpredictable and capable of saying anything, and Fox News is not the only only network with on-air talent who fits this description, can end up costing his network hundreds of millions of dollars. That's not just more than the advertising revenue of any one program, that's a large chunk of the advertising sales for the entire network over the course of a year. The cost-benefit analysis of cable news personalities is about to change, and the market for you never know what he's going to say next is about to crash. Unquote. Um, so I think that the effect of this settlement on the cable news uh, that we've all gotten used to seeing over the past, you know, 10 or 20 years or whatever, um, is going to be pretty wide, uh, widespread. Um, and I sit here today, actually, um, as the news just came across that uh, CNN just fired Don Lemon. Um, who was on the air for 17 years. And I think even more shockingly, Tucker Carlson was, was terminated from Fox News. Now, I have no idea why. 
uh, either of these people were let go. Um, I do think from Tucker's perspective, it seems like, and I'm speculating, it seems like it was at least uh, a bit because of the financials involved. Tucker's far and away the most popular um, cable news host on television. Number two is not even close. Um, he's obviously going to command significant compensation. And, you know, Fox has this $780 million settlement to pay um, on top of the additional lawsuits that are still hanging out there. Specifically, there's one from a company called Smartmatic, who also had voting machines, um, who's also suing Fox for, I believe, uh, $2.5 billion. Um, and that lawsuit is, you know, <laughs> for the same reasons the Dominion lawsuit didn't go well for Fox, I don't have high hopes for Fox's defense team on this one. So I think it's probably money. Um, but in any event, yeah, this, this lawsuit I think is going to have a significant impact on the ways on the amount of leeway that, um, on air cable news hosts have to kind of spout off, um, what they're going to say or their opinions, et cetera. Uh, and there's some other fallout from the seven we should talk about. Um, I want to note that the private equity firm that bought a 76% stake in Dominion in 2018, the company's called Staple Street Capital, um, bought that stake for $38.8 million. So this $787.5 million settlement represents a 1,500% return on that investment, which is pretty good. Um, the uh, Smartmatic case, um, it's actually for $2.7 billion. Uh, and in that case, I mean, Smartmatic is going to have the benefit of all the discovery that had previously been conducted in the Dominion case. Interestingly, um, Smartmatic has... Uh, utilize litigation financing to fund its suit. It was recently ordered to turn over that information and discover. We don't know the details, though. It seems as though Smartmatic, and I would guess, I'm speculating, but I would guess the Dominion case were bankrolled probably by European litigation financiers. Um, so lots to talk about here, Luke, but what's your take on this? Yeah, so setting aside... Uh how nice it would be uh, to be a crowdfunder for that uh, piece of litigation, huh? Betting on the outcome there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, setting setting that aside, I, I and I've of course I've read a lot about this uh, this lawsuit and seen a lot on the news, like everyone else has. Um, but I of course don't have any sort of independent you know facts or anything. I don't know anything about the case or the underlying you know facts that gave uh, rise to the lawsuit and you know what was going through everyone's mind when they decided to settle. But I think it does set, as as all big defamation settlements kind of do in defamation cases, um, I always worry about, you know, the chilling effect of the of the of the money here. Right. And and, you know, this is a, you know, a news outlet um, that had to fork over, you know, seven hundred and fifty some million dollars uh, because of uh, comments that hosts made uh during a show and i i i don't i'm curious to, to i would love to hear i'd love to be a fly on the wall in boardrooms at you know cnn fox nbc wherever abc um i'd imagine they're looking at this judgment going wow you know this is this is scary that's a big number and you know any time that anybody out there sort of feels like one of our hosts crossed the line from kind of fact giver to, um, you know, opinion maker or whatever, you know, we're opening ourselves up to these defamation lawsuits. I, I don't know that it's a step in the right direction for 
you know, free speech and democracy. At the same time, I, I readily admit that this is a bit of a hot take. I'm, I'm still processing this because it because it is a pretty recent settlement. But I I am concerned about the chilling effect money like this has on speech. So I I, I agree, although uh, with a couple of exceptions. I, one, I think I think that the, there will be lawyers who are now, you know, looking to bring cases like this now that there's a verified success record. So even just that, I mean, even frivolous lawsuits is you and I know, um, require time and expense and lawyers and everything else. So, you know, if Fox or CNN or whomever all of a sudden sees an uptick in, you know, nonsense, frivolous defamation cases that'll get, that'll get dismissed immediately, like that still has a cost. Um, and it's still going to, you know, make these news outlets self-police a little bit differently. Um, uh, I, I, I wanted to, I was trying to find something reliable to get into the damages that Dominion was going to claim at trial. Um, and I wasn't able to do that. I, I noted, I did see that Dominion had like, like I think had record revenue uh, after the defamatory stuff happened. So like 2021, 2022. Um, but from what I saw, what they're suing for is effectively that, you know, Dominion will never get a contract to provide voting machines in, frankly, in a red state or red county or red city ever again, um, based on this. And at least I think that was their theory of the case, right? Which is that we, our name is trashed to a large portion of our customer base um, over something that turned out to not be true. And so our harm here is, you know, whatever those contracts are worth times however many years that they think they would have got it. So uh, I think that's how they arrived at their initial number of over $2 billion, um, and that's probably how they calculated this settlement of $787 um, or whatever. Uh, I, I think, you know, the, it, it, the distinction here, it's that, and they could have had these guests on who could have said any kind of crazy thing and probably been fine, as I think what it seems like, but it's the fact that the, the hosts themselves, um, adopted, you know, the, the positions that the guests were saying and, and basically started speaking on behalf of Fox. Um, is it going to have a chilling effect on like news? Yes, absolutely. Um, I would argue, uh, the type of speech that's being chilled here though, it might be kind of nice for us to not have, you know, uh, <laughs> like to not have the hot take industry, um, be, uh, the number one revenue generator for these news organizations, you know, like it would be, if this forces the, uh, CNNs and the Fox news of the world to kind of stick a little more closely to the facts and, and keep a little bit less of their opinion out of it. Um, maybe that's a net benefit for us all. Uh, that's just my opinion though. Yeah, and that's a good point. I, so I'm actually going to be on a podcast later this week uh, called The Newsworthy, and, and maybe it's a question for uh, the host there. You know, wh as long as there's a blueprint for these folks to do their job, then I suppose I'm fine, right? I mean, if you're, it, but it cannot be the case, and I think you'd agree with me, Jack. It cannot be the case that uh, someone is sort of presenting an issue and uh, letting 
folks give their opinion on that issue. And then all of a sudden the network, by allowing these folks to provide their opinion and, and facts that they see as, you know, as relevant, all of a sudden the network is opening themselves up to a $700 million defamation lawsuit. And again, I, I, this situation I think was probably different. My sense is that there was probably story after story about Dominion. Uh, it wasn't, the questions weren't, tell me your opinion, tell me what you think went wrong. It was more of like, you know, an accepted foregone conclusion that there was voter fraud going on here and, and kind of piling on Dominion. Um, I'm just worried that that's, you know, you, you can see that the distinction, there's a distinction to be sure, but it's, it's slight. Uh, and, um, and I, I suppose, I, I suppose there's a way around that. There's a way to do journalism properly. And that probably didn't happen in this case. And that's why, you know, Fox had to, you know, stare down the barrel of, of $2 billion. Um, but cases like this always sort of make me squirm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know it's, it's an uncomfortable, you know, I mean, you, you don't want to, not everything is a slippery slope, but, um. You know, this is certainly something that you could, you know, maybe consider talking about in that context. My only thought is like the nature of the lawsuit and the sheer amount of money involved tells me that even Fox didn't believe in their defenses. You know, like I, I mean, of course they didn't admit liability, right? You don't do that when you settle these. They don't. There's no admitting liability, but they believe that they were so screwed at trial that they would rather give a give three quarters of a billion dollars, um, then roll the dice. And that to me, I think, you know, I mean, you can't, you know, technically you can't use the, uh, settlement, uh, you know, it's not evidence of guilt. Right. But, um, it is evidence of like lack of confidence in their defense position. And, and I think that, um, Fox's attorneys who probably have done nothing other than, you know, Dan Webb, for example, who we talked about, if Dan Webb thinks that they don't have a chance at trial, I mean, he knows a lot more than I do. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a weird one and it sticks out because of how much money's involved. Um, but you know, it, at the end of the day, Fox is the one who made this decision to do this. Um, it's not like it wasn't a, a ruling from a judge. It wasn't a jury. This was, this was Fox saying, you know, mea culpa. Um, and that's, I think, pretty interesting. And screwed is a legal term of art. Is that right, Jack? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> According to Reuters, a 95-year-old appeals judge named Pauline Newman in Washington, D.C., is under investigation over her performance on the bench. Judge Newman's court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, handles patent appeals, and Judge Newman is considered a leading jurist on patent issues. This investigation comes after other judges on the court question Judge Newman's ability to handle her caseload and she reportedly declined a medical evaluation, according to internal records the court released on April 14. When asked about the issue of age in her case, Judge Newman wrote in an email to Reuters that an order detailing the investigation last week had mentioned her age, but it, quote, carefully avoided saying this action was taken because of age, close quote. Last week, Judge Newman said of the investigation, quote, I doubt that my elderly colleagues would have joined such a statement, close quote, be a shot across the bow at her brethren. Now, the nonprofit New Civil Liberties Alliance, that's NCLA, is representing Judge Newman and has asked the court's chief judge, Kimberly Moore, and U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts 
to move the investigation to a different court. According to NCLA attorney Greg Dolan, who himself is a former clerk for Judge Newman, the general practice has been to move similar proceedings in the past. Dolan, who believes that the allegations against Judge Newman are unfounded, says of the request to move the investigation that, quote, it just makes sense that the people who might serve as witnesses not also serve as adjudicators, close quote. Now, concerns about a judge's competency rarely spill into public, uh, but some legal experts evidently told Reuters that the issue may be increasingly relevant as the U.S. judiciary grows older. Some of our listeners may be surprised to know that there is no mandatory retirement age for federal judges who are appointed for life and can be impeached, but not forced to retire. The average age of federal judges recently reached a record high, Jack, of 69. That's according to a 2020 study in the Ohio State Law Journal. Many judges uh, choose to take senior status, which is a form of semi-retirement that's generally offered at age 65 and allows for a lighter caseload. The average age of the 19 senior and active judges on the federal circuit is 71. And besides Judge Newman, there are five judges older than 80 on the court, including two who are active. Now, this isn't to say that many judges can't continue capably serving into older age. Of course, they can. But if anything, this shows that it can be difficult to nudge jurists off the bench if their competency becomes uncertain or an issue. Now, if Judge Newman's competency probe determines that she suffers from a disability, she could be blocked from hearing future cases and a new judge would be appointed to her seat, though she could keep her title and her compensation. The court's decision, as I mentioned earlier, to disclose Judge Newman's case at, at an early stage while it was still under investigation is highly unusual. Uh, the proceedings generally aren't public. And again, confrontations over judges' competence and performance are often handled privately, uh, sometimes through informal conversations involving a judge's family. Uh, only 15 U.S. federal judges have been impeached by the Senate. Eight were convicted, quote unquote, and removed, uh, and three resigned. Only one of those cases back in 1804 involved a mental impairment. And for those of you listeners who might be advocating uh, for instituting term limits or mandatory retirement for federal judges, that would require a constitutional amendment. And as you might imagine, such an effort in this divided environment would probably get little political backing. Now, there are also strong arguments for maintaining current hurdles for removal, including concerns that lowering the bar would make judges vulnerable to ideological enemies or changing political winds and limit the judiciary's independence. So, Jack, there's there's really, I think, two two things here. One, an aging judiciary is is real, right? Um, I mean, the objective evidence bears that out. But you know, based on your anecdotal experience, is it a problem? Um, and two, what's your take on on uh, term limits? Uh, I, for one, can tell you that I think I'm against it. I think I'd much rather be in front of an experienced judge who may be, you know, declining a bit. Uh, than someone who, you know, potentially bends the politics. But uh, as someone who, you know, who litigates uh, often, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your what your thoughts are on this. <clears throat> yeah, uh, it's uh, it's tough. Um, I, I don't even really think we need to get into term limits because it's 
so far outside the realm of possibility that it's, I mean, it'll never, ever happen. Um, I, I don't think that we're going to have a constitutional amendment um, on that anytime soon. So, you know, it's just not. Now, if if it could happen, would I be in favor of it? Um, maybe. I don't know. I, I, 95 is is up there. <laughs> 95 is up there, which isn't to say that um, Judge Newman isn't able to do her job. Uh, but any if anyone's going to put a term limit um, on these judges, I suspect that they would the number would be well south of 95. Uh, <laughs> so she probably would have been retired for 20 years now um, if there were, you know, term limits. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. Um, the, I guess, you know, politically, it's it's really dicey, though, because if you could do term limits, then, of course, it's the big issue of, you know, who's in office when, you know, certain judges' term limits are up, which we already have, especially with the Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, it would further, I think, politicize the judiciary because um, the appointments would all be, uh, you know, an, an election issue um, as, as folks are aging out at a given time. Um, so you, you would know, for example, in the 2028 20, cycle that like 37 federal judges are all going to automatically retire. And so that's a new component of the election that you'd have to worry about. Um, well, and remember and remember getting those people pushed through Jack has become a bit of a a process. I mean, we've seen recently, you know, judicial appointments, I won't say were a matter used to be close to a matter of course, but they weren't nearly as much of a fight as they are these days. Yeah. Um, so can you imagine if you've got, you know, like you said, 37 judges leaving in a year, you've got to replace 37. I mean, that would be insane. We've already got a shortage. Talk about a fight. I mean, that would be crazy. Yeah. That's like all the Senate would be doing. Which Correct. Is- confirmation hearings and arguments that's like that would be 100 percent of their schedule um yeah no that's a really good point uh it's you know really the system that we have which is not a great one is i think ultimately like the best way to do it which is you know there's no term limits but if someone is getting up there and starting to make decisions everyone kind of pulls them aside and says hey maybe it's time take a step back um you know informally but if you have someone who's not willing to do that, uh, you really don't have recourse um, against them. And, you know, here we are. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure this judge uh, is, you know, has her side of the case and everything else. Um, but to your point, for this to go public, for this to make it to the public, means that whatever it was that she's being accused of is probably pretty significant um, for, for people to leak it the way that it has. Yeah. Isn't that part shocking to you? I mean, that yeah. uh, reading the story, that was probably the most shocking thing to me where it's, you know, a fellow uh, judge of yours, a, a colleague um, reports you, you know, reports competency issues. That's, I mean, that's tough. I, I, and I, I will say this. So um, I don't, I, I don't think that we have enough judges on the on the federal bench as it is, I think anything uh, designed to remove the judges we do have uh, probably isn't the direction we want to go. I think what we want to do is find a way to get more qualified people attracted uh, to the bench. And, um, and then we can start talking about maybe separating the wheat from the chaff. But uh, until we get to a point where we feel 
like we've got a well-stocked pond, I think this is the wrong discussion to be having. An article written by Jeff Brown and published in Wisconsin Lawyer, which is the official publication of the State Bar of Wisconsin, highlights the criminal justice crisis in this state and the proposal to begin to rectify some of the funding issues. So I'll give you a quick summary of the article. Uh, Wisconsin's criminal justice system is in crisis. Pay for district attorneys and public defenders is set by state law and is too low to attract and keep enough lawyers. And although the COVID-19 pandemic might be waning, its effects linger. Caseloads are up because of the court backlog caused by the pandemic, but the number of prosecutors is down because open prosecutor positions are going unfilled. The funding crunch has also affected the State Department of Justice and the state court system. Two examples are the court system turning to digital court reporters because of an ongoing shortage of stenographic court reporters and the DOJ's request to add 10 DNA technicians and four toxicologists to the state crime lab to process sexual assault kits and other DNA evidence and to assist law enforcement agencies statewide with an analysis of controlled substances. Now, I won't read this entire article to you. You can go uh, read uh, Jeff Brown's article yourself. It's great. Uh, but I will tell you this. The starting wage for an assistant district attorney is $27.74 per hour, which is about $54,000 per year. Now, the paper mills in Appleton, uh, at least as of the time of, of this uh, article, are advertising entry-level positions that pay more than $27.74 an hour, but demand far less work than, that, uh, that, than what's required for a prosecutor. Now, the state public defender, that's the SPD, they're in the same boat because the starting pay for a public defender is the same for an assistant district attorney. As far as uh, fixing the problem or proposals to help remedy the situation, um, the WDAA, that's the Wisconsin District Attorneys Association, has proposed spending $14.4 million to cover market-based pay raises for all assistant and deputy district attorneys. And it's also asking for $4.5 million to cover merit-based pay raises. The SPD, again, that's the state public defender, is asking for $16.5 million to fund merit-based pay raises and to bring the starting pay for public defenders up to $35 an hour, which is what uh, corporation counsel get paid uh, here in Wisconsin. Additionally, the SPD is asking for just under $25 million to cover boosting the hourly rate for private attorney appointments to $125 per hour for in-court work and $100 per hour for out-of-court work, and boosting the travel rate from $25 an hour to $50 per hour. Altogether, the requests made by the WDAA and the SPD total just under $72 million, which sounds like a lot of clams. But really, it's only 1% of the state's $7 billion surplus. So, Jack, I know you're in Illinois. I'm up here in Wisconsin. This has become uh, a very real issue. I mean, the title of Jeff Brown's article is Criminal Justice Crisis. The bill is coming due. There are some, uh, there are some jurisdictions in the state that just don't have lawyers. And my sense... I can't speak for you, but my sense is, you know, one of the reasons that you became an attorney is because you believe in due process. It's, it's one of the things that separates our system from, you know, every other system in the world, quite frankly. And without 
these uh, men and women doing their job in the in the uh, public defender's office and in the in the district attorney's office, there is no due process for hundreds, thousands of people uh, across the state. And so if we don't have attorneys doing these jobs, I mean, it's really uh, it's a problem for the legal system as a whole, including, you know, guys like me who don't do any criminal work. I mean, a practical example is, you know, and I'm sure you've come across this, Jack, criminal trials will will take precedence over civil trials, um, I, I dare to say, always. Um, and so uh, if these criminal cases aren't getting tried, I mean, that's a very real backlog that's backing up our cases. I mean, it's a it's a it's bad for the legal system the entire way around. Um, it seems as if the fix is, you know, more money, better pay. Um, so you can keep some of these public defenders in office longer. You can keep some of these prosecutors in the office longer um, because what I'm hearing um, and again, this is all anecdotal. I'm not at the center of this. I don't purport to be. But anecdotally, what I'm hearing is, you know, these young folks are coming out of school. They're getting these really high profile cases very early in their careers, earlier than, you know, than they ever got them in the past. Um, they're getting this amazing, you know, sort of trial experience. And then they're just going to the private side and making right. double or triple, you know, what they were getting paid uh, on the public side. Uh, that's a problem, right? You've got to make it so that these folks want to stay on that side. And there's and 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 the system has a fighting chance to sort of retain the good ones. Um, as it is now, it's it's a mess, and and really it it's a it's a big problem for the industry as a whole. And so, I'm of course, curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, but this is more of a you know one of those stories that maybe we're amplifying. Uh, an issue more than sort of discussing it. Cause I think, I think there's really only one way to look at it, but what do you think, Jack? Yeah. I, I mean, this type of thing kind of grinds my gears. Um, and we have uh, similar issues in Illinois, um, not being able to properly staff the uh, um, state's attorney. You know, we, we don't, we're running out of prosecutors. Public defenders have always been overworked um, and underpaid. Uh, and, you know, like, this is not, and this is what drives me crazy is because this will be framed by certain people as, you know, public employees are lazy and they are complaining about, you know, their salary and, you know, et cetera. And it's like, no one, that's not true. And if you've met, and I'm sure you have, you know, prosecutors and public defenders are like some of the most technically skilled attorneys you'll come across. They're actually really good at what they do to be able to handle those situations in the volume that they typically are. Um, like my hat's off to everyone, to all my friends that are PDs and, um, and prosecutors who, and I, and I have a lot of friends that are in those scenarios, like those people know what they're doing first of, first of all. Um, but you know, the, the net effect of this is like it, the add on effects of, of these bag backlogs are really like bad, you know? So you have people that are, that are sitting in lockup for months, um, waiting to be tried uh, because there's no, there's no available to try them. And then you have all these negative externalities there. Like maybe a person who is truly innocent, for example, but is facing a four months in jail before trial takes a plea deal just to get out. Um, uh, you know, that's like an unnecessary pressure that is not supposed to be there. Um, you, you technically have a right to a speedy trial under our system. And we get around that with 
things like cash bail and, 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 uh, you know, options to let people out, um, uh, while they await trial and everything else. But, you know, uh, but even that backfires and you know that, I mean, that, that, that was the issue with, uh, the fella who drove through the Waukesha parade up yeah. here that he, you know, posted a thousand dollar cash bail, got out. He, you know, he probably shouldn't have been out, but he did because there's nobody right. to take care of his case. Right. And so that's, that's a huge problem on the backside too. That's it's like, yeah, it's like the net effect of this is like bad people that should be locked up or being let out good people that shouldn't be locked up or staying locked in. And it's like, that's really, really unfair Perfect. and bad for society. It, it should not happen. Um, and this, the solution is you, I mean, you would have, it would solve so many problems, especially in Illinois where there's this dispute over cash bail and, um, you know, in eliminating cash bail and all of that. And there's people who are obviously concerned about a scenario that, you know, like you mentioned where a bad guy gets out on cash bail and, and does, you know, does something wrong, but there's legitimate concerns on the flip side of, you know, people, if you can't, if, you shouldn't have to pay, you know, to, to get your constitutional right to a jury trial. Like that's like, that's not a controversial or even political statement. You know, you just, you shouldn't, um, you should be arrested, uh, for whatever it is. If you're charged, you should be charged. And then ideally the next day, you know, uh, there, I mean, if there's discovery or whatever, um, but you should be in trial as soon as possible, you know, and that helps everyone that helps the safety of, you know, the people around who are, you know, can trust that the system is going to take violent or dangerous people off the streets faster, or, and it protects the rights of people who are accused that are innocent because they get, they get, they don't have to sit around, uh, worrying about trial and getting pressured to make a plea deal. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not sexy, but like, if there was ever a candidate that, that could message this right and just say, you know what, I'm going to, triple the amount of funding for judges, uh, prosecutors and public defenders. I mean, that person would have, that person would have my vote. Yeah, no question. And it, you know, it, this, this statement always gets met by grimaces, but it, it is one of the reasons that I advocate for or stump for, you know, to whoever will listen about the need for more attorneys. I mean, we do need more lawyers, maybe not. And we, we touched on this in past episodes, Jack, I don't know that, um, urban areas necessarily need more lawyers. Um, but I do think that it's a problem in rural areas where we, we don't, we, there's literally like no public defenders or no prosecutors in some of these rural areas. And, you know, you've, just, you've got to increase the pay for these folks um, so, they, so that we keep good people in that role. So I, I think you need, you need more of them and you need more of an incentive to keep them on the public side because without it, the system fails and we're all part of the system. Yeah. And even partial failure, which I think is, I think we are living in partial failure now. And like you have like, right, the, the uh, Wisconsin uh, driver parade guy, you know, that's the perfect example of, of, of a foreseeable, uh, you know, second order effect of this. Like that, that is a hundred percent foreseeable. The idea that, you know, someone who's violent can get out on bail because there's a backlog of cases and has all the time in the world to then go and do something else horrible. Um, that's that's a hundred percent foreseeable, and that's I mean that is just a administrative governing problem. You know, it's not the fault of the prosecutors, it's not the fault of the PDs, it's probably not the fault of the judges. Um, it's you know, there's just not enough public investment in these institutions, which you know, frankly, should be a lot higher on people's list of priorities. Couldn't agree more.
That's the show for today. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have thoughts on any of these stories, as always, uh, let us know what you think. Until next time.